This is the Fertility Hour, where couples learn how to improve their fertility naturally. Join Charlene Lincoln as she interviews leading experts in the fields of natural fertility, holistic medicine, and preconception care. Fertility Hour is where you'll find evidence-based strategies, tips, and resources to help you when trying to conceive. And now, here's Charlene Lincoln. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Fertility Hour. And um, I'm going to say this in the very beginning, and I'll probably say it again. Um, if you like the content, if you like the guests, then please subscribe. It just shows um, great love and support, and we will continue to do this great work. Um, we work very hard to get you the best uh, guests we can. We search all around the world, so um, please support us by doing that. Thank you so much. And... Um, Welcome back. I have Dr. Eva Keen with us today, and uh, always excited to have you here. So welcome, Dr. Eva. Thanks, Charlene. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Um, okay, so I'm, you know, uh, if you want to find out more about Dr. Eva, um, her website is natural-fertility-prescription.com. Um, she's a naturopath. She's based in Verbier, Switzerland. You can find out more about her in the podcast notes. I'm going to go right to the questions, but she has been helping couples all around the world for over 10 years now. And she's amazing. And just, um, you might've heard it from another podcast. She helped me get pregnant and I had my daughter at 42. So um, I'm a big fan and um, always love the opportunity to ask her questions. She's so knowledgeable. So let's get right to it. And, and Dr. Eva had her daughter, Ella, at 41. And so we're both really fortunate to be older moms because that's a whole different uh, interesting um, phase of life you know and uh, I, I'm, I'm thankful for it uh, I think I'm a more patient person now what what about you Eva has has it been a, a very good experience being a I guess quote-unquote older mom um look it's you know it's been great because I think you know I mean we all have different you know, different histories and there are lots of reasons why women delay having children and, you know, they, they're, they can be so individual. Uh, but, you know, I, I love having Ella in my life. She, she completely changed my life. It's, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for her and uh, every day she grows a little, she changes a little and uh, she's just, you know, becoming this amazing person, not that she wasn't amazing when she was born, but you know, it's just this continuous, um, yeah, this continuous growth and, and just how they develop and, uh, and the love they show and express that that's, you know, that's mm -hmm. so amazing. And yeah, I, I love, you know, I love being mom and I, I don't, honestly, I don't know, you know, what I would have been like as a mom if I had kids in my twenties, um, you know, very different person now than I was then. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, these things happen when everyone's ready. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I honestly don't know if I would have been a great parent in my twenties. I just a little bit self-absorbed so you know like all of us and I think that's the time to do it I, I'm always impressed that people can be great parents and they're and they're younger you know I think wow that's a, a very unique individual because um, it is a huge they give so much to you and, and you sacrifice 
you know, I, it would have felt more of a sacrifice back then than it does now. Now I feel like, oh, it's not a sacrifice at all. I've done all that. I don't, I don't care, you know, to anyways. All right. So, um, <clears throat> so, um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you a question about uh, AMH because I think there's a lot of emphasis put on that and um, a lot of questions, um, and I know you probably get asked this all the time, um, how do I increase low AMH? And so, you know, how, how does one naturally increase low AMH and, um, and just give us some um, background information about when it's important and when it's not as, as important. Sure, sure. Um, look, so AMH is a, is a bit of a misunderstood hormone because it's not like an F, your FSH, um, which can vary, you know, it can go up and down depending on where you are in your cycle. Um, AMH is a, is a hormone, anti-mullerian hormone that's produced by the primordial cells which women are born with. So these are the cells that have the potential to become egg cells. They're not egg cells yet. And from puberty until menopause, every four months, five or six of those primordial cells are selected for maturation and they undergo this maturation process that lasts approximately four months. And um, only one or two make it for ovulation. So um, these cells are producing the anti-malarian hormone, and this is used by IVF clinics to determine the level of stimulation drugs to use in an IVF cycle. And the lower that number, the poorer the ovarian response. And there is actually a um, gynecologist in, um, in the UK um, Dr. Nicolau, who, who said that, you know, antral follicle count, AMH, these tests should really be called ovarian response tests and not ovarian reserve tests because they tell us nothing about a woman's ability to get pregnant naturally with her own eggs, even if antral follicle count is low, even if AMH numbers are low. So these numbers, these figures are only important for IVF so that they know how well a cycle will um, go and they know how many eggs they can retrieve. Obviously, the, the, you know, the smaller the number of eggs that can be retrieved, the poorer the outcome of IVF. Um, so you know, IVF works then better for women with better AMH numbers and more um, higher antral follicle counts. So women you know, in their 30s rather than women in their 40s who naturally have a lower AMH number because they've already ovulated quite a few eggs over their fertile years. Now, what we also know is that at the time of menopause, a woman still has anywhere between 500 and 1000 eggs, which never develop. And menopause starts because of the breakdown of the communication between the pituitary in the brain and the ovaries and not because the ovaries run out of eggs. So, you know, that also tells us that again, you know, the, these numbers are important for IVF, but not for natural conception. Mm -hmm. And um, it simply means that you need to work on improving the quality of the eggs that you do have left. Now, we have seen some women, um, you know, have a slight increase in AMH after they do a full preconception program, take all the supplements, clean up their diet, clean up their lifestyle, you know, remove all the toxins or most of the toxins. 
um, you can have a slight increase. And it, that doesn't mean that, you know, suddenly you have more of these primordial follicles. It simply means that those follicles that you do have left, more of those have become active. They're now available for selection and this maturation process. So really, you know, don't panic about your AMH numbers. I mean, of course, it always depends if you have to use IVF or not, if you have blocked tubes. I mean, some women and some couples simply have to do IVF. So, you know, for them, um, I would just say, try and optimize your eggs as best as you can. We had one uh, patient who was 44 when she came to us and she had to use IVF and she also had low AMH and uh, they could never retrieve more than, you know, two or three eggs. And then after she did a program, they retrieved 12 and called her medical miracle at 45. So again, you know, it is possible. Um, if you make changes, if you don't make any changes, if you don't adjust anything, then, you know, it's, it's not the, the chances of, you know, improving are not there. You have to change something if you want to see different results. Uh, yes. I mean, and, and there was, I was reading one comment, a woman, and it was sort of confusing to me. She said, um, I have low AMH. Um, so my, my doctor is telling me I need to rush into IVF, but if you have low AMH, then you wouldn't be a good candidate for, I, I don't know. That was a little bit confusing. Is yeah. You, you get, you know, you get lots of confusing and mixed messages out mm -hmm. there. Um, you know, and a lot of it just boils down to statistics, which are based on extremely old, um, data and, um, you know, and, and. Yes, but for women in their 40s, you know, if they don't have to use IVF because of tubal issues or because some other anatomical abnormalities or, you know, problems with the man, then they should really just try and optimize their natural fertility as much as possible and, you know, just keep trying each month um, with the right timing. Because if you get the timing right, you're also increasing your chances of getting pregnant Um than if you don't. So, well, uh, you know, that, that's sort of where the, the focus should be. And even if you do have to fall back on IVF, you can do as much as you can to improve the quality of those eggs that you have left. Okay. Thank you for, for clarifying that. Um, you know, I came across some fertility statistics and they were based on, I guess, some data from rural, rural France between 1670 and 1830. And I know, um, I think you showed me that information. So um, sure. these statistical yeah. numbers, yeah, what what are, what were they saying? And does it represent, I guess, today, our, our modern age? Yeah, well, look, uh, I mean, th this, this interesting statistic um, was reported in an article that was published in 2013 or 14, I believe, um, by... Uh, by a psychologist who, who wrote Impatient Woman's Guide to Pregnancy. Um, and uh, she actually came across these stats and you know, she, she, she observed that women always told if they're in their 30s, they have about 20% um, chance of getting pregnant per cycle and women who are 40 only have 5% chance of getting pregnant per cycle. So she started questioning, you know, where, where is this coming from? Which stats are all these people quoting? And so her research 
led her to uh, an article that was published in the Journal of um, Human Reproduction, which was quoting these stats uh, from, uh, from church birth records from, yeah, exactly 16, what was it, 1670 until 1830. Um, and it showed a rapid decline in birth rates, um, you know, when women hit 40 or 41, that was kind of the cutoff point. No more kids uh, were born after that. But, you know, you got to remember that women back then started having kids when they were 15, which meant by the time probably when they were 25, they already had all the kids they wanted. And yes, mortality rates were much higher because there were no antibiotics, you know, no running water, no electricity, you know, who knows what kind of um, um, hygiene uh, people had access to and so on. So of course, all these factors play a role, but also the life expectancy was much shorter then. And people, you know, were regarded as, you know, really old people when they were approaching 40s. So I think, um, you know, we, we can't really rely on this information and this data that's, you know, two to 300 years old, but yet the same sort of numbers keep showing up in many fertility clinics. You know, they're still all saying the, the, the same statistics, which is not true. So, um, you know, some other research uh, and statistics uh, from 2013 show that, I made some notes here, uh, so show that out of 3,000 couples in Europe, 78% of women aged 35 to 40 got pregnant within a year if they were having intercourse during their fertile time. So that's 35 to 40 year old group, um, 3,000 couples, that's a lot, and 78% um, got pregnant within that first year. So that obviously shows a completely different picture to uh, what a lot of um, clinics are quoting. And um, also another study showed that women aged 40 to 43 who already had at least one child um, had 60% chance of getting pregnant within six months. Again, that's not statistics you hear um, when you look at some of the numbers that are being shared. So, you know, you, you just have to, um, you have to, you know, do your own research. This information is out there. This is not secret. Um, and you got a question because statistics are so easily manipulated. You can also turn every statistic around to make it sound scary and to make headlines, which is what, um, you know, what media reporting sometimes is all about. They, they want their articles to be read. So they have to, you know, have catchy titles and get people to, you know, read them. So they will use fear as a way to, to get um, their reading rates up, I guess. And so you just have to be careful about how you interpreting these stats and don't really um, just panic and take it as, as a gospel. Mm -hmm. But then, I mean, there's people listening, and even if they didn't look at the, the statistics, I guess, if you're struggling, then you feel like it is an, it is an age thing, like, oh, if I tried 10 years prior or whatever, I probably wouldn't have these same difficulties. Um, so it's a little contradicting in a way. Um, I, I hear what you're saying. And the thing is that, you know, most people who, unfortunately, today, most of the statistics are derived from IVF clinics. And 
obviously people who end up going to IVF clinics are those people who have issues trying to get pregnant and you know it's kind of all just lumped together so if someone is 42 and has blocked tubes and hasn't been able to you know get pregnant for the last five years is it really age-related or is it due to the fact that her tubes were blocked the whole time so mm -hmm. she couldn't be pregnant all this time or the men had poor quality sperm for whatever reasons all this time as well so is it really then the age factor um, so that's kind of what you got to ask. And yes, of course, it's, you know, we see from statistics that while you can get pregnant, you know, when you're in your 40s, it just may take you much longer to achieve that pregnancy. You know, you may need to try like literally every month for a year to be successful, even longer. Whereas mm -hmm. if you're younger, it may take you, you know, three months or six months. But it, again, it depends on what other factors you have. But if you address all the underlying issues, then you are increasing your chances of getting pregnant um, in spite of your age. So age doesn't really become the, the main factor. It's just that the way statistics are presented at a moment sounds like the age, you know, is the main factor. And then everything else comes underneath. And it's not uh -huh. really like that. It's everything else that comes on top. And then your age is an add-on factor that tells you, okay, because of your age, you have a natural decline in fertility, which is normal, but it's still possible. But if you address all these underlying issues, your chances are increasing. Right. Uh, you're kind of erasing some of that age factor too. If you can, you know, prep your body and, and help those cells mature, because they're really not older than, you know, four months. They've been, they've been there since before your birth, because they formed when you were an embryo um, in your mother's womb but they're in their dormant state until your body says, hey, you, you're up for you know, maturation. And that's when that cell wakes up and starts maturing. So um, that's, you know, that's kind of also the message we are trying to, to share with women because it's just so sad you know, how, how many women and couples are devastated um, or you know, come out of fertility clinics crying because they've been shown these numbers which basically tell them you've got zero chance of getting pregnant because you're 43 now and those statistics end at 41 so mm -hmm. you know it's not going to happen yeah it it, it could be devastating but it also can be motivating um absolutely like, yeah like it was for me i mean when i saw when i heard the statistics it made me go well i need to increase those statistics i'm not and don't think of yourself as the average of the population. Hopefully you're not, and you've lived a, a good lifestyle because I was thinking, oh, I'm not an average statistic and I need to just increase that. And that's where I think a lot of people who are searching you out, I mean, you know, they go, okay, well, yes, the age is part of, a little part of it, but I can do so much to um, increase my success. Absolutely. And you know, when you're, when you're in your forties, you've got lots of advantages. You've, you know, you've worked on your career, you're financially more, you know, stable and you can look after yourself better. You can, you have kind of your life more or less under control, or at least, you know, some routines in your life, which a lot of 20 year olds don't have. Um, so mm -hmm. I think Tina Fey made a funny comedy sketch about, um, you know, how they're, they're basically 
advising women to get pregnant in their 20s. And she said, when I was in my 20s, I was living above a biker's bar and I was earning $12,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I would have been a great mom if I, you know, if I right. circumstances. <laughs> so, and then she did, I think, get pregnant in her 40s. So there you go. I mean, it's, um, you just have to, you know, do your best, work with what you have and give it a go. I agree. Um, you know, what about timing? You were, you were talking about timing in intercourse and how important that is and kind of brings up a couple of questions. I want to ask you about um, charting, which I'm a big fan of and I always edu- try to educate people on charting because some people go, well, why do I need to do all that? I just use the ovulation predictor kits, which I think um, they, there are some short comings with with that even though it seems very convenient etc but um so intercourse timing is crucial um and and of course it can reduce the time to conception so talk a little bit about that because i I think that date um, a lot of women are taught like day 14 is your day of ovulation and and that's a big myth i i think so yeah yeah, I mean, you know, char- you, you can learn how to chart, not just to help you um, pinpoint ovulation, but also to learn about your cycle. It shows you how long your luteal phase is, how long your follicular phase is. It shows your temperatures. So, you know, if they're consistently low, it can be a sign of poor thyroid function. So that can be a sign that, you know, you may need to have your thyroid checked. Um, you know, if your luteal phase is shorter than 10 days, then that doesn't give your body enough time to prepare the endometrial lining for the fertilized egg to implant. So that can be an issue. It could be progesterone issues. So you can learn so much from a chart. The main issue people have with charting is measuring the temperature and making sure they had enough sleep. And this becomes quite problematic for women trying to get pregnant with their second baby if they have a young toddler in the Mm. house and you know they wake up in the middle of the night they come to their bed or you have to go to see them and so your sleep is disrupted and then you have to go to the bathroom so right it's true they gosh i have no idea if these temperature readings are correct because i'm getting up and i'm not sleeping properly so you have you have different options today you have the ava bracelet that measures all your um data while you're sleeping and so it's not really it's measuring averages so it doesn't matter if you got up uh for some women it makes no difference you know if they actually get up out of bed um or not or you know it's a tiny little difference for others it makes a big difference so always advise women look just measure anyway and compare then you will know what your body does and where you at. But in any case, I think if you charge for three months, um, it will give you a pretty good idea of you know how long your cycle is. So going back to your question about 28-day cycle and ovulating around day 14, that's not always the case for every woman. If your cycle is you know 26 days, you're probably ovulating earlier um, than 14 days. But it doesn't have to be. It could be just that your luteal phase is shorter, which is why it's good to measure that um so there are a few apps you know a lot of women like um using uh, fertility friend i think then there is natural cycles so these are apps which help you um plot your cycle so you still need to do the measurements yourself or you can also use computers like um, baby comp 
um, or the bracelet Ava that I mentioned. Um, so there are a few gadgets out there that can help you with this. Um, the problem with the uh, ovulation sticks is that, you know, one, they cost money. Um, two, you know, different, different brands can give you different results. And sometimes they're just relying on, if you're not using, you know, the expensive digital ones, if you're just relying on the ones that, you know, show you a couple of lines, then mm -hmm. you kind of go, well, is this a really faint line or is it a darker line? Let me do another one. So it, it can, you know, um, it, it, it can cost a lot of money. Plus on top of that, um, they're looking for LH surge. So LH surge precedes ovulation. So when they can give you a positive um, result for LH surge, but you actually don't know if you ovulate it. So I'm, I'm a big fan of cervical mucus um, and observing your fertile mucus because that's a true predictor of what's going on. Because when, when your body is producing lots of estrogen, uh, leading up to ovulation, you're going to be producing lots of fertile mucus or the, the super stretchy egg white mucus. And that is a sign, you know, that ovulation is coming and it's this sort of mucus where sperm can survive in. And, and so you really want to have your intercourse when you see that fertile mucus because you want a medium for sperm to you know, travel to the uterus and then continue their, their travels to the fallopian tubes. And that fertile mucus is also protecting them from bacteria in the vagina and it's feeding them. So it's, you know, it's, it's a fantastic medium for, for the sperm to reach your fallopian tubes. And, um, and it's kind of your body's way of telling you now is the time. So try to really um, you know, learn how to measure your mucus. And it's not something that you have to obsess about as well and, you know, make extra trips to the bathroom to check it. You just check it in, in, in the morning when you wake up, when you're going to the bathroom anyway, once in the afternoon, once in the evening, and you just leave it at that. And, uh, and you can also, you know, pay attention to um, how it feels when you're walking. Does it feel wet and slippery or dry? So, um, you know, some women just go by that as well. They don't necessarily check, but some would like to check, especially in the initial months where they're not familiar with it until um, mm -hmm. they, you know, get a bit of a feel for the cycle. So I recommend, you know, at least for three months, chart with temperatures and observing mucus, and then you're going to have a pretty good idea of what's normal for you and you'll be able to pick up any abnormalities um, you know, when, when your normal cycle is not recurring, or like I said, if your temperature is too low in the first half of your cycle could be sign of thyroid issues. It kind of brings up another couple of things too, because I think that it's not totally uncommon for, um, some women to not really have, they're like, I don't know if I have cervical mucus, I don't feel it. So then that could be a sign of estrogen deficiency, right? As another indicator. It can, um, it can. I mean, some women just don't produce enough, so it doesn't necessarily just have to be estrogen related. Mm -hmm. It could be that they're not drinking enough water mm -hmm. um, or they don't have enough manganese, which you need for production of fertile mucus or production of mucus and you know secretion, same with men um, when it comes to sperm. Um, so it could also be, you know, due to uh, trauma to the cervix and the cervical crypts. Some women 
um, you know, if they have to have um, laser treatment of the cervix because of HPV or something like that, that can damage the crypt, so they're just not able to produce. Uh -huh. you know, for some other women, you know, the cervix could be damaged from the birth of the first child. So you got to just look at all these different factors. I you see. Know, don't just jump to a conclusion that you don't, you know, you're low in estrogen. And okay. You know, this is what we see a lot, you know, when, when um, clients come to us, they just take so many herbs and so many supplements because they read, you know, this is good for progesterone. This is good for estrogen. This is good for that. And it can, you can make a real mess. You know, um, because you, you're basically instructing this incredibly intelligent endocrine system what to do. So you're telling it what to do. And, you know, your body just knows exactly what to do and how to do it. But if it's not doing something, you know, properly, it's because it has an issue with something. So you just need to find out what it is rather than, you know, just quickly try everything under the sun, hoping something will work. Okay. A very good point. And, and I guess I was thinking like, don't make the assumption like that's when you maybe get a hormone panel done. But I, I agree like the dehydration and those things could definitely be an underlying factor. What about the, um, what's your thoughts on that? Um, what is it called? Pre-seed lubricant or something? Um, is, is that for when women feel like they have insufficient cervical mucus, they're recommended that? What's your um, thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean that you know that's one lubricant that's been shown um, to not damage sperm. The problem with a lot of the other lubricants is that they uh, they can damage the sperm um, because they have too much water, too little water, and that change in you know in the fluid around can actually kill the sperm. Mm -hmm. So you need to aim for that perfect pH and. Um, uh, yeah, so, so that's one option um, that can be used. Then um, I think in different countries, you may have different brands. I think here in Switzerland, there's something called Prefert. It's, a, it's also a type of lubricant that's specially designed for conception. Um, and also you need to sometimes just check um, if there is any fertile mucus around your cervix. So you, you may not have enough or, you know, not enough comes out so that you feel it in your vagina or see it in your underwear, but it's actually around your cervix. So you can just check a few times because if it's around your cervix, it's enough for conception. You know, when you have intercourse, the sperm are going to be deposited right there and it's, it's waiting for them there. So that's something um, to also consider. Okay. Um, you were talking about not self-prescribing herbs. We're all sort of guilty of doing that. I mean, there's so much information, a lot of good information out there, but of course, sometimes we feel like more is better. Um, I know it's kind of not, you know, but anyways, talk about some of the key nutrients that all of us should be taking who are trying to conceive and, and why, and so, kind of some of the pitfalls of self-prescribing herbs that you have seen um, when, when women and couples do that. Look, I think, you know, we need to differentiate between nutrients that our body needs um, to make cells, you know, just basic building blocks. And then we have nutrients which can impact our hormonal balance. Um, so herbs, you know, would come into that. Um, picture and so things that everyone should be taking in my opinion are good quality omega-3s so fish oils um, especially you know from 
krill or from fish, not from linseeds. A lot of vegans and vegetarians use linseed oil. And unfortunately, we don't convert enough of, of linseed oil to form that our body can use. We can only convert to about 20% if we take it together with a source of sulfur. So some yogurt or an egg or broccoli or something like that. But even so, you're only converting 20%. So um, that's a really important nutrient because you need it for um, egg cell and sperm cell development for hormone balance to, to keep your in, inflammatory markers in check and also for your um, mental health. You know, brain is made of DHEA fatty acids. So and when you're dealing with infertility, you need a lot of that support so that you don't become depressed and anxious. And so it's super important. Um, the other one is CoQ10 or ubiquinol, a form of it, which is really important for mitochondrial function, uh, mitochondria are cellular engines. So these are the nutrients, you know, you would need on, on a regular basis. So this is just to keep your engines running, in, in, engines inside the cell running as well as they can, especially for egg cells and sperm cells, because um, if these engines don't run very well, then there is a greater room for error and also um, problems you know, with DNA replication can occur. So this is where we're seeing chromosomal issues and this has been linked back to older age um, moms and um, you know, women trying to get pregnant and the fact that they have older eggs because their mitochondria are not functioning as well. So um, vitamin D is another crucial nutrient because it's, uh, it's a pro-hormone, which means it's a precursor to steroid hormones, so estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. It's also super important for your immune system. And vitamin D deficiency is very common in um, people with autoimmune conditions. So having adequate amounts of vitamin D is crucial. And then of course, also your folinic acid and activated B12, depending on your genetic polymorphisms. Um, so you need to find which type is the right type of folate and B12 for you. And then you need to be taking that just for your methylation to support the methylation, which again is taking place in every single cell. It's basically, I like to refer to it as a, you know, recycling factory where you turn the most potent um, free radical a body makes homocysteine into methionine, which is an amino acid. So it's a very clever recycling mechanism. But if you have certain genetic polymorphisms, it won't work unless you know which nutrients you need to use to bypass the areas which are not working. Okay. Um, and then any kind of uh, more information about, I, I guess there's so many herbs out there and, and, and there's like those adaptogenics like maca or panic stensing. I mean, they seem so um, um, benign, you know, I mean, is there any problem to, to taking those? Look, um, you know, one, one very commonly used herb is Vitex because mm -hmm. it's got such an amazing reputation online and um, it's part of lots of pre-made fertility formulas that you can buy online as well. And, um, and you know, it, it, it is great for some women, but not for all women. It can actually disrupt your cycles. Uh, it can, you know, make your cycles shorter or longer. Um, because it's 
talking, communicating directly to your pituitary gland. And it's not, you know, it doesn't contain hormones. So it's not really uh, blocking some receptors or um, activating others, but it's kind of just communicating with the pituitary and telling it, you know, do this, do that. So it's basically increasing your LH. Um, and that can, that can have, you know, all sorts of impacts on your cycle. So I would just be careful because it's not ideal for everyone. Um, and, uh, you know, other herbs like maca, if you've got endometriosis, you know, the maca tends to kind of just help your body, um, with estrogen. I mean, it's, again, it's not, it doesn't contain the hormone itself, but it's, it behaves similar to what estrogen would do. So then you wouldn't take it necessarily for that reason if you already have what's considered an estrogen dominant condition. Um, so you just need to be really careful then um, uh, with, um, what is it, the other one, not the bee pollen, the- um, Royal jelly. Royal jelly, you know, that's another common one and that can have similar effect. But if you're also allergic to bees, or honey, you know, you shouldn't be having any bee products. So there you have to be careful again. Um, I, you know, I think it's good to take the basic building blocks um, in form of the key nutrients, you're optimizing your body nutritionally. And then if you have antibodies, if you have, you know, high FSH, if you have some other issues, then really speak to um, a practitioner who's trained in herbal medicine um, to really be able to, you know, prescribe the right herbs for you, for your case, and then to be able to monitor you because, you know, for a practitioner too, they, you know, they, they can't really see automatically how well the herb is going to match your condition and, you know, how good you're going to be on it. So if they, they see that your cycle is actually not going where it should be, they can quickly change it and, you know, change the, the prescription. So, um, whereas, you know, if you're doing it yourself, you wouldn't be able to see that and, uh, and make those changes on time. Okay. Um, I know that you educate people about like fertility cleanses and things like that. Um, and I think they're pretty gentle, the, the type of cleansing that you do, but what about things like chelation therapy? Um, before conception, what if, you know, what if you had a, like a hair mineral or hair analysis, you found out you had some heavy metal, um, is that a good idea while you're trying to conceive? That, that's a great question. Um, so it, it, it all depends and it's, it's a tricky area. Um, it really depends on how old you are and, you know, how many fertile years you've got left because with some of the, um, chelating protocols, you know, it can take between six months to a year or even longer to get the results you're after. And you, you shouldn't be trying to get pregnant during the chelation protocol because when you are pushing these metals out of their hiding places, they're entering your circulation and they have high affinity for cells which contain, um, you know, a lot of fat and egg cells and sperm cells do they they have in their membranes uh, you know all the hormones and these toxins are attracted to these cells so they can accumulate in those cells and then you're trying to get pregnant with those cells and you know there, there could be complications or it could end in a miscarriage or you know there could be some permanent damage 
um, in the offspring as a result of that, which is why, you know, we always say do not try to get pregnant. Now, you can't tell a 43-year-old woman don't try to get pregnant in the next two years, you know. But mm -hmm. at that time, she, she's 45, and as we know, it's still possible, but her chances are becoming smaller um, of getting pregnant naturally. So it's, uh, you just got to weigh it up. You got to see where you're at. And, you know, sometimes it's better to then leave those metals alone until after pregnancy and then focus on it. Um, it's, it's really an individual decision. And I guess it also depends on their other sy sym symptoms and, you know, conditions that they may have. And, uh, where they're at, if they're severe, if the toxic metals are extremely elevated and they're only in their 30s, I would say, yeah, maybe it's better, you know, to remove them or if they re have recurrent miscarriages. So you got to really take it on a case by case basis. It's not something that you can have just a standard protocol for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, you know, regardless of their age, when you're dealing with fertility. And, you know, when, when you want to get pregnant as soon as possible, then you really have to weigh it up. Okay, thank you. Now, um, when couples are trying to conceive, can you kind of give us a guideline of, of first steps to start taking when um, you're, you're starting off in the process? You know, what tests, need, what tests do you need to start considering? Um, you know, everything kind of along that line. That, that's a great question. You know, I think you, you should always start with tests. The sooner you can test, the better, because then you know already if you may need to use IVF. You're not trying, you know, you, to get pregnant naturally when it's not possible for you. Or you do know that you do need extra assistance. Um, so, you know, check your hormones, check your thyroid, um, check your thyroid antibodies because you can have normal TSH and, you know, your, thy your thyroid antibodies can already be present. So what we learned now is that thyroid antibodies can precede changes in TSH, T3 and T4, whereas before it was believed that if your TSH, T3, T4 look normal, there's no point checking for thyroid antibodies. But it takes, you know, sometimes up to 10 years for this new scientific evidence to show up in medical textbooks before it's accepted as a, you know, as a new clinical practice. And that's a long time for a woman, 10 years, woman trying to get pregnant 10 years is, mm -hmm. you know, huge. So um, check your thyroid. Um, so check your FSH, um, LH, estrogen, progesterone, sex hormone binding globulins. Um, and the men can check all these as well. On top of that, free testosterone. For women, we also recommend checking testosterone because even though it's not a major hormone for women, it does play a role in fertility um, and especially, you know, libido. So um, it's important that you, you check that as well. Um, and then for men also, you know, checking um, the sperm and asking for a sperm morphology, which is important. And oftentimes it's not included as part of just a regular um, sperm analysis, checking for DNA fragmentation. That's where the, the DNA in the sperm can start uncoiling. So there's a you know, higher risk of chromosomal uh, damage. And, uh, and also checking for sperm antibodies. 
So antibodies could be interfering with sperm's development and that's important to um, look at as well. Um, and then, you know, women should also check her tubes because like I said, if they're blocked, then you should know that from the start. So, you know, just trying to get pregnant naturally for months on end without any results. Um, and, you know, and then just look at what's the, you know, the best next step. It's always a good idea to optimize your natural fertility, optimize your hormones, egg quality and sperm quality, even if you need to use IVF, because we know that IVF statistics, um, success rates go up when these things are addressed. In a okay, thank you. Um, Hold on one second. If you hear a cat in the background, you are not imagining it. Let me just um, stop one second. Yeah, I have um, a <laughs> There's, a, there's a, a cat meowing in a few of these recordings, so we hope people like cats. Anyways, um, okay, so thanks for breaking that down. A couple questions. Um, I always, you know, the more I learn about testing, I feel like the, the type of test that you use is so important, but you know, clarify this for me because I feel like if um, most people, if they go to their general practitioner or get the hormone test done, it, it is gonna, going to be a, a serum test, right? I mean, that's kind of the most common. And then I, I sometimes feel like that's not the most accurate picture of what's going on um, with the hormones in the body. Or, uh, and then a lot of times, of course, uh, a thyroid test, um, you know, they will do TSH. If you ask them to do uh, um, the antibodies, then I'm sure that they'll do that as well. But then if they don't do like T3, reverse T3, T4, that you won't get an accurate picture um, of that as well. Or, or sometimes even with the hormone test, you're just, you're, um, you're just looking at a short little window of the hormonal cycle. And now they have what's called cycle mapping where they go through the whole cycle because a lot can be missed. So kind of I clarify uh, that for me, like what's sufficient enough, you know, as, as far as hormone testing goes. Look, I mean, uh, in, in, in the sort of last five years we've seen some amazing new tests come on the market mm. and you know this is obviously fantastic because you can now measure hormone metabolites in urine um you know it was long believed that salivary hormone tests are better than serum but now urine dried urine tests is actually um showing to be more precise uh, in some of the areas um, and it can also tie into your methylation, especially when it comes to how you're processing estrogen through the COMT gene. So, I mean, these are, you know, fantastic advances and I think we need to use them. And as far as the thyroid goes, you know, and trying to get some of these tests done in the US, you have a service called requestatest.com where you can bypass a, a doctor and you can order the test yourself. Of course, it's not gonna be you know, claimable on your insurance because you are the one ordering the test, so you pay out of pocket, but at least you can get some answers if you can't you know, get them from your doctor. And if you, you know, look for a functional medicine practitioner, then they will definitely be more than happy to check your toxic metals and food intolerances and reverse T3 and thyroid antibodies and, you know, um, dried urine tests, so things which are not common practice yet in um, conventional medicine um, clinics, but they will be, you know, mm -hmm. 
these things, like I said, take time. They can take up to 10 years before they make it up there. So mm. um, you have lots of options. I think we live in a fantastic time because we are so fortunate to have all these tests and, um, you know, options and alternatives and that you have IVF and you have donor eggs and donor sperm. You know, there's so, so much available to us that was never available before. So as such, you know, you have, a huge sea of opportunities but yeah you just need to um you need to you know speak to a practitioner who knows a bit about it and understand that you know if you have tsh over two that's not really ideal for fertility even though your gp may say your thyroid's fine and you know looking at those reference ranges yeah it looks like it's in the middle so it's fine but for fertility we're looking at slightly different ranges so your thyroid needs to be working a little bit better than that so mm -hmm um again you know you just need to become proactive i think this is really important you know people need to start taking responsibility for their health and um and they do you know most i mean our job is to educate and teach and most functional medicine doctors do the same and um you know that that's really when you get the best results when you know um, how you feel and you, you know what your test results mean and you know how to look after yourself, what to eat and which supplements to take. Um, that's, that's really when you get the best outcomes. And I mean, um, just a, a time to kind of plug your coaching. People can um, work with you and um, because not only, only are you a, a functional medicine practitioner, you specialize in fertility, because I think there's, we need to kind of differentiate that too. I mean, there's, there's functional medicine people that are wonderful, but they don't treat a lot of fertility. And so things get overlooked. Maybe they don't know about cycle mapping or just, you know, all the different kinds of um, different tests that are available out there and kind of how, how to look at um, herbs um, for example, we talked about Vitex. Maybe they don't know that it, cha it can change a woman's cycle and they feel like it's an herb that um, most women can take safely. And, you know, so I, I think it's really important. Um, you and your team and the fertility um, service that you've created, I think is, um, I think it's phenomenal. And so I just, you know, I want to put it out there that people are able to work with you. You're in Switzerland, but you work with people all around the world and you have for over a decade. And um, so... Um, how, how do, how, what's the best way for people to um, find out more about you and your services again? Um, the best way is just to go to natural-fertility-prescription.com website, or you can go straight to fertility-coach.com and you can sign up for more information about our 16 week online coaching program. Um, we also have a blog with lots of um, articles on various fertility-related topics, and you can, um, um, you know, find lots of good information there. You can also ask questions, um, and or just, you know, email us. Email me. You can email me at Eva. That's Iva at fertility-coach.com. Um, you know, and we can see how we can help you with um, your case, and you know, if. Um, the coaching program is a good next step for you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. Thank you. Um, what about the, um, you know, I've been hearing more and more uh, about gender selection. Um, but what, what is that like that? Um, what things you can do to, to uh, increase the chances of having a boy or a girl? Is that, 
Is there any legitimacy to those? I mean, look, there, you know, um, I think everyone, a lot, lot of people say, mm-hmm. and it's true, you know, people just say, I just want a healthy baby. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, but, you know, and of course we all want a healthy baby, but I think, you know, subconsciously or maybe in the back of your mind, you're like, I'd really like to have a boy first and then a girl or, mm-hmm. you know, a girl or like just two girls, the sisters are so cool or two boys. Um, you know, and the men could be thinking the same thing. So while people always say, you know, I don't care as long as they're healthy and that's true, I think in the back of their minds, they still may have a preference Uh, or if they already have two boys, you know, they desperately want a girl because they want to balance their family. And, you know, if they have one girl, they may want a boy. So um, there are, you know, with IVF, we know we can pre-select um, the embryos, but for natural conception, for a long time, it was believed that Dr. Shettle's method was the right method. And according to this method, the um, the Y sperm um, are faster and they live for a shorter time, and the X carrying sperm are slower, but they live for a longer time. So he said to conceive a boy, you should have intercourse closest to ovulation because the Y carrying sperm are going to reach the egg first and fertilize it. Um, If you want a girl, you should have intercourse few days before ovulation because by that time, all the Y carrying sperm will die off and only the X carrying sperm will still be around. And so your chances of conceiving a girl are higher. But um, over the years, um, you know, people who have used his method have shown that they had opposite results. So mm. when they waited um, until they ovulated, they would conceive a girl. And if they had intercourse a few days before ovulation, they would conceive a boy. And so now actually based on, you know, lots of new statistics and, and research and studies, they're actually showing that is the case. So if you would like a boy, you should be aiming to have intercourse a few days, two to three days before ovulation. And if you'd like to have a girl, you should have intercourse on the day of ovulation even like few hours after you ovulated but for most people it's difficult to you know exactly say oh i ovulated at noon so i'm going to wait till four to um have intercourse but that's just very interesting um you know and and that's what i love about science that you know science is an ever-changing field and things are constantly um disproven and um you know new approaches come out and that's why you just can't rely on you know a lot of this information that's been published i don't know five plus years ago i mean a lot of these things don't change but a lot do and that's why it's so difficult to not get confused and it's so easy to get confused because you can be reading information that's really outdated or the practitioner you're talking to hasn't updated their information yet or hasn't just looked at the research recent research so you know, it's no wonder people get really confused and they come mm-hmm. to us and like, I don't know who to believe anymore. I read this, I read that, that practitioner says A, you say B, you know, the other person says C, you know, what's the right way? And everyone's, you know, really confused. So you just got to accept that in, in health and in science and in medicine, there is um, this element of science that it's ever changing. You know, it's constantly changing, it's constantly evolving. So you gotta embrace that and, uh, and yeah, just work, work with people who do like to do their research and stay on top of research.
Right. And, and don't like, there's all these kind of like, uh, I don't know what the, like little sound bites you see maybe on a, a, a Facebook, what it real or something. And then people, um, because it's tedious to actually go into PubMed and actually read the whole article, it's sort of boring if you're not into that. So people get little like blips of something. I mean, I have a mother-in-law who kind of does that. She'll watch the local news. Oh, I heard all vitamins and organic is just a big waste of time. But, um, you know, she doesn't want to go and actually like look at the research. She just, they did a little sound bite to catch her attention on the local news. And then she makes up her mind based on that or, mm-hmm. you know, something that Dr. Oz said or whatever um, is, is just fact. So it does, it gets extremely confusing. And just like you said, I'm basically repeating this same thing. Um, you know, go with someone who's actually like reading these extremely long and somewhat tedious, um, you know, publications, research articles, and find out the real facts because it, it, it's really misleading. And, and especially like nutrition and diet. Oh my God, people get so frustrated because it literally changes all the time of what is considered quote unquote healthy. It's, it's kind of maddening. Now, um, before I forget, um, I had one question about progesterone. Um, I read that online a lot, like in the, in the forums and things like that. People um, will start taking progesterone cream. There's a really popular doctor, Dr. John Lee, who um, was big into progesterone therapy. And so you can, like in the United States, um, I, I was interviewing someone else who said you can't get over-the-counter progesterone cream in some countries, but here you can just go into your local health food store and get a tube. Um, is there anything that we should kind of know about um, self-prescribing progesterone cream? Is there any downfall to that? Again, you know, I think you just really need to, first of all, get your progesterone checked. Um, you know, either using the uh, the dried urine test or if you want to do serum tests, it needs to be seven days post-ovulation. And that's not always cycle day 21 for everyone. Mm, right. It's important that you know how long your cycle is and when you ovulate and then count seven days from then. Um, and, you know, based on that, if you do need uh, progesterone support, the next step would be to, you know, speak to... Um, functional medicine practitioner who also specializes in women's health or uh, in fertility who can then look at okay do you have a progesterone issue well let's look at your diet let's see if you are actually giving your body all the uh, building blocks that it needs to produce progesterone and you know using hormones really should be your last option Mm -hmm. You know, where, when all else fails, because mm-hmm. when you find hormones being, you know, be it through suppositories, be it through creams or, you know, or pills, um, you are basically forcing your hormone onto your body and your body now needs to metabolize that. And it's going to adjust everything else based on this new input, because that's just, you know, new information that's coming to your system. And, um, and that may not have a good impact on all the other hormones that, you know, it's, it's a very delicate cascade of hormones that is relying on all this input from various hormones and glands. And if you now just put lots of progesterone on your skin and it just enters your body, it's going to disrupt that. So um, you can cause, you know, you can create a lot of disruption in your cycle doing that. And, you know, what you also see a lot is that a lot of women who are afraid of miscarrying they you know they they believe that if if they just support their progesterone they won't miscarry and what happens then is um 
you know, the, the embryo stops developing maybe around week six or seven, but they don't miscarry until week 12 or 13 because mm -hmm. they had all this progesterone coming into the system that maintains the pregnancy, even though the embryo wasn't alive anymore. Um, mm, and so wow, right. It takes to miscarry. Um, rather than just going, okay, look, if, if your progesterone really is low, you know, your obstetrician is going to be able to act there and then and, you know, support that while still, you know, having your scans to make sure the, um, the baby's still developing properly. But, you know, sometimes your body is going to drop the progesterone on purpose to cause you to miscarry because your body knows that this embryo is not viable for life. Mm, right. That's a really good point. I, I think just because we're on the topic of progesterone, I think another um, hormone is DHEA because a lot of people read about um, DHEA on paper sounds phenomenal and it sounds like something you should take. And so people do it. They don't get tested to see what their levels are. And I know, you know, like what's the issue there of just starting to take uh, DHEA supplements. Look, I think you got to separate supplements into two groups, you know, uh -huh. supplements for natural conception and supplements for IVF. So with DHEA, they've seen increase in number of eggs that can be collected through IVF. So I think if you're going to go for that option, um, you know, DHEA may be a good thing to help you, especially in your, if you're in your 40s and your AMH is low. So maybe that's a good option to get your... Um, egg number up so they can collect more eggs um, for IVF procedure but I think same with melatonin it can do the same thing but mm. you know too much melatonin is going to it's going to mess with your cycle so the dosage is sometimes what you read what's being used for IVF really works for IVF but it does not work for natural conception it can cause more um, disruption to our natural cycle because if you think about it you know if you're trying to get pregnant naturally all you need to know is when you're ovulating so that you can time your intercourse on top of making sure you're getting all the nutrients to optimize the egg and sperm quality if you're then taking all these hormones in the forms of you know creams or pills and you're disrupting that balance suddenly you don't know when you're ovulating you don't know where you are in your cycle so actually you know, lowering your chances of getting pregnant. But, you know, having said that, a lot of women have taken the HEA before conception. We don't recommend that you take it for longer than six weeks before conception um, because our bodies are very economical. If, if the body is getting a hormone from an external source, it's going to, you know, stop producing it internally because it doesn't need to or it's going to decrease what it produces internally because there's no need for it since there is a convenient external source of it so if you're just playing with dosages without really knowing what you're doing or what you should be taking you could be again doing more harm than good especially if you're doing it long term okay thanks for clarifying that last question um, there's a lot of talk back and forth when you're trying to conceive if you should have intercourse every day during that fertile period to the day of ovulation or every other. And I, I'm, I'm assuming it, ha it has to do with sperm, but people say kind of across the board, oh, you should have intercourse every other day. And that seems to mm -hmm. be kind of the opinion out there. Yeah, I mean, if, if the sperm count is low, then if you have intercourse every single day, you, you're kind of diminishing that reserve of sperm that's available. But if you give it a 24-hour break, you kind of give testes the time to reload 
the sperm, so to speak. If the sperm numbers are good and normal, then you know you, you could have intercourse every single day. Um, but you know, sperm still live in your system between um, three to five days. So if you're having intercourse every other day, you know that's okay as well because there are some sperm um, which are deposited there. Again, this <clears throat> is just just also means that you need to make sure that you have fertile um, mucus around because if you don't have fertile mucus around, then that sperm is not going to be able to get um, to the uterus and, and to the egg. So. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, just pinpointing your ovulation and then timing your intercourse, you know, two to three days before ovulation, day of the ovulation, um, then you kind of cover that fertile window. And then, you know, if you're hoping for a specific gender, then you can apply some of those um, uh, recommendations uh, on when to have intercourse. Okay. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. That was wonderful. And um, please, you know, support us, subscribe to the Fertility Hour, and we'll bring you more wonderful uh, guests. So thank you, uh, Eva, for your time. And uh, it was great. Thanks, Charlene. Thanks okay. for having me. Thanks. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Fertility Hour. For being one of our loyal listeners, we would like to give you free access to a special report called Restore Your Fertility Naturally. Inside, you'll learn about an eight-step, all-natural process that's helped hundreds of couples conceive. This is one of our most popular reports, and you can get free access by going to fertilityhour.com forward slash report. Again, that's fertilityhour.com forward slash report. Go there now, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Fertility Hour.